Welcome to Sport Faith Life. I'm Chad Carlson. And I'm Brian Bolt. We're two guys from rival schools who came together with one common purpose, to think deeply about sport and faith. We're sports scholars, we're coaches, and we're competitive athletes, or at least we were. And together, we've created Sport Faith Life, a conversation that meets at the intersection of sport and faith. Welcome to the Sport Faith Life podcast. I'm Brian Bolt, and I'm here with my co-host, Chad Carlson. Today, our guest is Andy Parker. Professor Andy Parker has a distinguished career as a researcher, as a scholar studying sports ministry and related subfields. Dr. Parker has uh, served at the University of Warwick, the University of Gloucestershire, and most recently now um, working in a faculty position at Ridley University uh, related to University of Cambridge. Dr. Parker, we're so excited to have you here, and uh, we know so many of our guests know who you are, know you from the work that you've done, specifically as a co-convener of the inaugural Global Congress on Sport and Christianity. So you are certainly a recognized name, and we're really excited today to be able to have a conversation with you. As we open up, uh, we'd, we'd like to give you an opportunity to share a little bit about yourself. So as we look at your life, uh, your history with sport, the doors in which sport has opened up to you, um, can you share a little bit about the background there? Yeah, thanks, Chad, Brian. Great to be with you, and um, thank you for, for having me. Um, yeah, so sport, I've um, been involved in sport all my life, like like many of your listeners, and um, I was pretty hopeless at sport at school, actually, um, at high school. And um, But for some reason, that sort of tipped when I was 16, 17, uh, managed to start playing semi-professional soccer then, and then took a dip for a few years. I think it frightened me a little bit, that love, and I wasn't really up to it. But then in college, um, went back to play a better standard, which was great, and uh, and really enjoyed it. Just you know, really, soccer was my game. So, but nothing remarkable. Well, I get the sense that there's a bit of humility there as you share that answer. We appreciate that. So, how about the history of of faith, the faith background of your life? Yeah. So, um, interesting. Grew up in a Christian home. Great Christian parents and family. Um, but probably avoided and ignored that for the first 20 odd years of my life. And um, actually walked away from church when I was 12, 13, because somebody kindly told me that you couldn't be a good soccer player on a Christian. Um, <laughs> so so I, it was one or the other, so I went with soccer. Um, but then it took me probably 10, 12 years to go back in a church. And um, and when I went to college, on, the, on my first day at college, met a guy who was a brilliant rugby player and had a great sense of humor and he was a Christian. Um, and the rest is history. I, I went to church with him, uh, gave my life to Jesus and never looked back. Andy, your uh, sport life, uh, as you call unremarkable, and your faith life has its uh, its twists and turns, of course, but the the rest of your life is is amazingly fascinating as I've gotten to know you and our most of our listeners probably don't know a lot about other aspects of your life uh, either your professional life or personal life what's one thing that you think just kind of rounds out your story one thing that people don't know about you that maybe you ought to you'd like to share um well I have a I have a great wife Becky who keeps me on track and um, without her I'd be even worse. Um, but I think the, I suppose my other interest really is in criminal justice and the way we can help people um, 
in that in that sort of uh, sphere through sport and and connections there to, to the legal world as well. So I'm really I'm really passionate about in a secular sense how we how we help young people change their lives through sport when they've been when they've come through a you know quite a difficult background and in one sense been dealt quite a difficult hand in their early years. So thanks, Andy. That uh, gives us a little insight into the work that you're doing now, especially as you uh, are working with marginalized uh, populations, vulnerable children especially. And I want to come back to that. But in in, uh, in between, I would like to take a little bit of time just to sort of tease this idea that uh, at the end of this podcast, we are going to make an announcement. Uh, Chad, Andy, and I will announce uh, the location of the third Global Congress on Sport and Christianity. For our listeners, if you recall, there have been two other Global Congresses. The first one was in York, UK in 2016. The second one at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan in the US in 2019. And we hope to continue that pattern of every three years for the Global Congress. And so we do plan to have a a Congress in 2022. And Andy is going to reveal for us the location of that next Congress. So those of you that are waiting for this, uh, get excited and stick around to the end of the podcast. Thanks again, Andy, for uh, kind of giving us a little insight into yourself. And I'm really interested uh, in your current work uh, and really the history of your work as it relates to these marginalized populations. And we'll connect sport in there a little bit as we go, but just give us a little sense of how you got started with this and the direction that it's taken you as you've gotten invested in the lives of these children. Yeah, thanks, Brian. It, <clears throat> I was I, I was I grew up in a working class home and and um, sort of came across. I suppose my school years were were around a very diverse population of people and lots of marginalised young people in that environment and in my. I suppose in just in my general life at that time, um, and then um, eventually, when I'd been through college, I became a physical education teacher in high school, and I always really had a passion for teaching in what we call the inner cities, and um, where I knew I would I would be around marginalised young people all the time, and I taught in a school for six years where really a lot of depriv- social deprivation at the school right in the centre of, of, of an English city, um, highly multicultural, 87% Muslim students. Um, and just really, I suppose what you would say, uh, really at the sharp end of life. And 11 to 18 years of age taught mainly the the, the boys in that school, although with the upper school taught, taught girls and boys. But it just really solidified that passion that I had to how do I how do I influence these people's lives? How do I make a contribution? What can I do, given the privileges I enjoy, to to try and to try and turn things around for these people, rather like people did for me? And I think that's that's just been a real strong passion for me. And and of course, then through my Christian life, I've I've very much felt that, like God's called me to do that. So so that's why it's an ever present, I suppose. So this work that you're doing seems to combine then this uh, sort of personal personal and faith-based passion that you have uh, along with the sort of a scholarly interest as well. So you've, you've attacked this maybe from uh, most specifically from social sciences, uh, psychology, sociology, counseling type of 
research background, and also um, a bit of law thrown in there as well. This is a multidisciplinary approach, no? Yeah, it, it is. I think you're right, Chad. And, and you know, this is how God does it, isn't it? It's all by, it, it's it's kind of all by accident. He, um, it's all there in front of us. And, and I suppose one of the questions I believe God asks us is, do we want it? Do we want to do something in people's lives? And um, and I'm a firm believer that that when I see God, um, well, first of all, I'm a firm believer that I will see him. And when I do see him, one of the things he's going to ask me is, what did you do for my people? And that's everybody. And, um, and yeah, I just feel just really called to that, to those populations. And um, I suppose I've been, I've also been privileged to work with people from discipline, different disciplinary areas. So in the research team that I have around sport and criminal justice, I've got a clinical psychologist, a forensic psychologist, a criminologist, and I bring a little bit of sociology to that. So again, God's put really good people around me. And when we think about the work that you've done, it's really, uh, it's a complex uh, action. It's, those are complex problems and complex uh, interventions uh, for uh, these kids, these students that come from uh, lots of different places. And you've even uh, found ways to identify levels of trauma, uh, things that um, might make them vulnerable. Can you explain the idea of trauma and the effect that that has on the life of a, long, a young person? Yeah, sure, Brian. Thanks. We, we, we sort of work with this thing we call the classroom to courtroom continuum. And that is where we see children and young people coming from chaotic backgrounds, difficult homes that often leads to truancy from school, that often leads to exclusion from school, that then moves to antisocial behaviour into criminal justice settings and eventually, unfortunately, often ends up in correctional centres, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's a very broad brush approach. You know, we hope that a lot of these young people won't go down that route, but unfortunately there are some real commonalities there and some real, a real strong pattern. There's an embedded pattern for lots of those young people. So, um, and it's easy to look at those children, young people and think, gosh, you know, why have you done so much wrong? Rather than saying, what happened to you? And what I'm really interested in is that second question. What happened? Tell me what happened. How did we get here? And, and often a lot of those young people don't know. They just, they just don't know what's happened to them. And so when you start to mentor them and, and coach them a little bit and try and educate them and work with them and co-produce a discussion and a narrative with them, one of the things I aim to do is to, to try and say, look, you know, some of these things that have happened in your life are actually traumatic. They are traumatic events and traumatic events have consequences. And it's really just a matter of, I think, trying to provide the education for them in that sense around trauma. So when you and Nick uh, gave your keynote address at the Second Global Congress, one of the things you talked about were um, ACEs, uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And that seems to be um, sort of the anchor for, uh, for navigating through in a mentor-mentee re relationship, um, helping children deal with or understand as part of the narrative that like you just mentioned um and how that might affect them in an adverse way so with these these aces um what is it that you're what is the what is the basis for our understanding of aces and how that is so central to the mentor mentee relationship yeah so aces the aces framework came out of the states in the mid 90s and it's it's gradually getting 
becoming more popular, certainly in Europe and in the UK. And governments are thinking about adopting that framework at a systems level across social services and support because it's very easy to understand. And more importantly, it's easy to explain to young people. Um, so the, the whole basis there is that effectively one of the ways to deal with trauma is to provide a safe and stable conversation with a responsible adult. And so a mentor acts as that safe and stable person. And the other underlying principle there is you don't have to be a therapist to have a therapeutic conversation with somebody. And that that really, for me, is is the beauty of it, that, you know, as mentors and as individuals, when we journey with people, I think we'd be amazed sometimes how much how therapeutic that is for for anybody who's experienced trauma. And let's face it, most of us have experienced trauma in some in some form or another. So it almost it almost presents this this it almost the framework almost gives permission to non qualified therapists to to journey to simply journey with people and be that stable adult. My passion is to provide a mentor for every young person in Britain for the rest of their life for free. We call it Mentor for Life. Um, I have absolutely no idea I'm going to do that, but I'm passionate about it. <laughs> what a great passion and what a, a great life goal to try to accomplish that. And you've talked really openly about how mentoring relationships, especially if they're short-term or abruptly cut off, can cause some of the same problems that you're looking to alleviate. Uh, how, do, how do you make this mentor for life thing work? Um, and how do you avoid that problem? Yeah, I was, I was dreading you asking me that question, Brian. So um, <laughs> lot, lots of people asking that question. So I think the main thing to think about is it's an offer. Um, take a step back. I go in lots of churches and there are lots of good men in there. And remember, I deal mainly with men and male mentees, etc. There are lots of good men in churches who say to me, Andy, I haven't got a ministry. I'm not sure what my purpose is. I'm not sure what God wants me to do. And I say, would you commit to one person for the rest of their life? Would you do that? And if that person will say yes to that, then I believe that's the most significant ministry they could possibly step into. I'm in a church of around two and a half, three thousand people fantastic church we believe in big church on a sunday we believe in the power of small church during the week to keep people connected but i also believe that small church doesn't get any smaller than one-to-one relationship and i'm absolutely convinced that that is a key ministry for any male or female in our in in present day circumstances to simply make a commitment to someone whether they want to do it straight away or whether they ever want to do it to say i will journey with you for no apparent reason for the rest of your life, if that will help you. So that's, that's really the principle I work on. And it probably sounds and feels a bit loose, but I, I really believe that one of my um, tasks in the next 10 years is to mobilize men in churches to make that commitment. Hmm. So we're stepping into a space here um, as, a, as separate societies, I suppose, right? Uh, depending on where we are geographically, stepping into a space that's, that's sorely needed instead of, um, you know, letting the, letting the ideas come to us. You've shared that we need to step into the mainstream, that we need to uh, uh, reach out and speak into issues that are there. It's, it's an idea of, uh, I suppose, running towards issues um, as opposed to sort of waiting for issues to come to you. And there's something, uh, something really uh, impressive about the, the activity, the, the act of nature of that. It's almost like seeking out 
issues, ways in which we can uh, speak into that. And you've 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 um, approached this idea of speaking to the mainstream uh, a bit from your your foundation of sport ministry. And I wonder if you could speak more specifically to uh, the ways in which the sport and Christianity community might be able to um, uh, join in on your crusade or uh, be a part of it in, in other ways as well. What's the connection there? Yeah, so that's a good question, Chad. I think that, you know, the sports ministry community in the last, I've been involved with that community for probably 12, 13 years. I think it's great, you know, being around you guys and people like you and, um, you know, the passion and desire to put sport and faith and life together. Um, and I, I really believe in the potential of that sports ministry community. But one of the things that's one of the traditional elements of that community is we've always received what comes from the mainstream and tried to respond to it and accommodate it. So, for example, in, in Britain, um, the government might set sports policy agenda. Um, and as a sports ministry community, we've looked to connect with that, engage with that, align with that. I suppose my passion is what if we were driving that? What if we were contributing to that? What if we were stepping into that space and saying, we've got some great work going on in sports ministry. We've got some great mentoring of young people. We've got some great sport offerings. We've got some fantastic summer camps. Now, for you in your societal setup, that might be already there. But for us, um, I think we've got lots of work to do there. Now, our society is currently in crisis. Um, government is, you know, on bailout in terms of people's occupations and jobs, money is tight. You know, people are going to go through shortages of money because of redundancy, et cetera, due to COVID. What about if we see this a window as a window of opportunity where the where the church steps in to help secular sports provision and says, wait a minute, we can we can come and work alongside you, work with you on this. We've got a contribution to make here. We've got great people in churches doing great work around sport. Let us help you for nothing. You know, maybe we maybe we just want to make a contribution. And um, I'd just love to see that happen. I think we've never had a better opportunity than this. Uh, you've got me inspired, Andy. That's uh, stepping into the space right now. There's there's a lot of spaces, right? We've There's always been a lot of spaces, but now we, we had COVID on top of that. You've spent a lot of time in sport ministry, which is kind of one hat you wear. And then another hat is is some of the work you've done with vulnerable populations, and they don't always blend together. Can you give us a sense of what sport bring you think sport brings to the table? In other words, there are a number of ways to mentor a person, and sport may or may not be involved in that, right? That's a It's a piece, it's a tool, it's a something. But what does sport bring to the table here that maybe is unique to sport or uh, somehow uh, gives opportunity that something else might not? Yeah, I think in our society, Brian, and again, I'm not sure what it's like for you guys in the US, but really, if, if we want to engage a young person in a conversation, we've got three chances. Popular, popular cultural conversation, uh, media, music, performing arts and sport, and that's it. They're not going to talk to me if I, don't, if I can't talk that language. And even then, they might not talk to me at all. So I think sport is one of the very few um, things that we've still got left to connect with young people, to be able to engage with it. And ment mentoring is all about shared experience. If I don't have a common ground with somebody, 
I can't possibly build a relationship. I can't possibly establish trust and credibility. And if I, if I have no trust and credibility in that relationship, I cannot speak into it. I can't speak prophetically into it. So I've got I've, good mentoring is all about finding that common ground, shared experience. And what sport gives me and, and people who I work with is one of the very few things that are left to engage with young people. And the reason why I'm so passionate about young people is because they are next next generation of the church. Obviously, it feels like we've lost a generation, maybe two. And and if if we if we've only got a very small number of things to engage them with in that conversation, and sport is one of them, then I've got to put all my effort and energy into that. So it seems like we're you know we're talking about sport here as um, as a tool, right? And it's a it's a something. It's a way in. It's um, it's a shared language um, across generations, and there's something that sounds probably to many sports scholars um, a little bit less meaningful about using sport in that way, and yet it's probably a bit short-sighted to think that too, because so many of us receive our sporting heritage from older generations as it is. We, we hear of a lot of, um, at least in the U.S., um, anytime I... I poll my students, you know, why is it that you support this team or that team? It's, it's largely because uh, parents did or, um, you know, teachers did or people that were really influential in their lives. And so a lot of what we believe uh, comes from an older generation. So we're just talking about this. Um, we're talking about creating a relationship among, uh, between a child and someone of an older generation that wouldn't exist naturally. And what are some ways that we can help to manufacture that and make it to be um, a meaningful relationship and sport is is one way that we do that uh, and so the mentor is is stepping in in ways trying to find connections if i'm assuming this right um in ways that um an, an, an adult would that's otherwise naturally involved in a child's life am i right in thinking that sport is a tool here but it, it's a it's a common tool that are even used in sort of parent child relationships uh, that's absolutely right chad and i think that um you know, one of the things that really drove me about this, and this is a bit, it, it's come the wrong way around in one sense. Um, I saw I saw the potential of sport to change people's lives in criminal justice. And then I realised that, wait a minute, if it can work in a prison, why on earth can't that work in a church context? What was I thinking? You know, Sometimes I say to people, I spent I've spent ten, twelve, thirteen years studying sport and faith, and I think that's the main thing that I've recognised. It took me ten ten years to think about that. That's not that's not a great track record, is it? <laughs> but if if I if sport can change somebody's life in a prison, I'm absolutely sure it can change somebody's life through a through a faith and church context. There's absolutely no. I have I have a a cupboard full of evidence to tell me that, that that's possible in, in a criminal justice setting. Surely we can transpose that model onto, onto a sport faith conversation. And I also think that this not this is not about mentoring people who are already Christians. It's not about being these are non-judgmental conversations and relationships. You know, it's about going to a young person and saying, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter who you think you are or what you've done wrong. For no apparent reason I'm going to commit to you for the rest of my life. And the rest of yours, and I, you know, if somebody would have said that to me at thirteen, I wouldn't have spent a dozen years out of church. And that really, that really resonates with me. 
Now, Andy, one of the strengths you bring to these problems is your grasp of data and uh, trying to analyze the, the problem from a, a big picture perspective. And yet you speak in stories uh, and you provide narratives and it's a very incarnate uh, kind of experience. Can you give us some examples of mentoring relationships, either from your own life or from what you've witnessed that uh, exemplify, if even on a, a minor level, some of the things you're talking about that uh, help us understand how this actually looks uh, in a day-to-day -day setting? Yeah, I can. Uh, um, I'll tell you, I'll share a personal story with you, if I may. Um, when I was when I was nineteen, um, I was I was in the madness in terms of my life, not not making great choices. I was in I was in work. It was before I went to college. I was working in I was actually working in manufacturing industry, um, working night shift in a factory, and um, I remember being at home at my parents' home, and a guy came to see my father one Saturday morning. He was, a, he was a, a school teacher. He was a head teacher of a, a local school. I'd heard about him. I'd never met him. And um, I was I was sat in a chair watching television. And he just happened to pop in the room and he said to me, right out of nowhere, he said to me, Andrew, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I said, "I'm good. well, I don't know what I want to do, but I'm going to work in a factory. And he said, are you sure that's what you want to do? Have you never thought about anything else? You play a lot of sport. You do well at sport. Have you never, have you no other ambitions? And I said, yes, I'll tell you what I'd really like to do. And I was being flippant at the time because I didn't want to talk to him. I said, I'll tell you what I really want to do. I want to be a physical education teacher in secondary school. And he said, well, I'm going to help you do that. And for two years, that guy journeyed with me. He, he drove me to a swimming pool every morning for two years because he swam every morning. He picked me up every morning at 7 o'clock, took me there, he took me to night school so that I could get enough academic qualifications to go back to college. Um, um, and he, he completely changed my life. He even filled my application form in for university because I, I had no idea what I was doing. And, and on the basis of his support, I gave up my job, gave up everything that my parents thought was my destiny um, and decided to go to college, uh, move away and go to college and train to be a teacher. And I look back now. He was mentoring me. He never mentioned the word mentor. He never, he never said anything about the kind of things we're talking about. But he completely changed the trajectory of my life. Completely. There's no question. And because of that experience, I want to make sure that I do that for as many people as I possibly can. There's a bit of a, there's there's a pay it forward mentality there. That's. That's really uh, uh, inspiring, and along with the rest of the work that you're doing. I wonder if, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about uh, the connections that you have now with uh, the Ridley Seminary and the work that you have going on there. Yeah, so um, I was really fortunate and, again, privileged. I was approached about a year ago um, by somebody in the Church of England who told me that the Church of England were going to set up a 10-year sports ministry strategy. They'd done some work before, but they were going to renew that and reshape it slightly. And would I be prepared to be involved in some initial conversations around it? And of course, I said, yes, that would be great. I can, I'll do whatever I can. And that became a small advisory board for that strategy. And within six months, it was decided that part of the strategy would be um, that it would have some educational training and uh, education 
training education training courses around it and that Ridley Hall in Cambridge would be the pub for that the place where that would happen and then um, within another couple of months I was given the opportunity to be part of setting up those courses which again fantastic privilege for me and um, and so that since then we've been we've we've piloted the course for a year we did an initial higher education one year course and we're now about to develop into it into a three-year undergraduate program um, off the back of that pilot. So, I mean, it, it's just great to be involved. It's, um, you know, God's doing some great stuff. And it's always, when you're on that, when you're on that roller coaster, it's exciting and, and frightening at the same time, but um, just, just a great journey, really. So you start to talk a little bit about kind of your career path and how you've ended up in different places and just been open to where God is taking you. You've spent a good amount of time exploring the world of sport and faith and the academic world of, of sport and faith. Uh, as you think about the sport and Christianity literature, the trends, the movements that have come and gone, uh, what do you think has been one of the real positives that's come from that? And maybe if you can think about it, what's, what's a gap? What's, a, what's something that's been missing? Yeah, yeah. Um... One one of the huge positives for me is just the way we can work together. Um, you know, to, I can connect with you guys and that like-mindedness. I mean, the Congress has been brilliant. Nick Watson, obviously, you know, had the had the initial idea about the Congress, and that's just a fantastic opportunity to to bring all those thoughts and ideas and debates together every three years. <clears throat> Excuse me. And of course, there are other there are other great. Um, Events like that, the Sea Skills Conference, for example, is is a similar sort of uh, sort of event. I think that um, when I started at the University of Gloucestershire in two thousand and eight, in the interview, um, somebody said to me, uh, "You know, Andy, if you come here, uh, there are three things we, you, you have to do in the first three years." And I, I said, "What are those three things?" And he said, "We want you to set up a virtual research centre. We want you to start the teaching on the masters in uh, sport and Christian outreach." And thirdly, we want you to we want you to get the UK on the map in terms of the sport faith literature. And of course, I was in an interview room, and I, I nodded and smiled, and I said, "Yes, of course, I'd love to do that." And I said, "If I haven't done any of that after three years, I'll walk away. You won't need to tell me to go." Uh, and then, of course, I got in the car on the way home, and I thought, "What on earth have I just said? I must be crazy." <laughs> Um, because at that point I hadn't actually written or published anything on sport faith. I'd read a lot of stuff. I'd enjoyed reading it as a hobby. Um, but but really what that that question and that those pressures in one sense really inspired me to build not not it wasn't about building UK literature, it was more about connecting into what was already there. Let's get this thing on the map. And the big thing for me was can we get some of that sport and faith literature into the mainstream academic literature and the journals? And that's now happening more and more. And that just is amazing for me. You know, there, I see things coming into journals that, that, aren't, that aren't religious or faith-based journals, mainstream sports, sociologists, sports, sports psychology journals. And there's a faith conversation in there. And I just think, I mean, it's not my work necessarily, but it's just brilliant that that's happening. That is, if somebody had have said that to me 13 years ago, I wouldn't have believed it. I just wouldn't. And that's just been enormous. So the gap for me isn't necessarily a gap in terms of what's absent. It's more about can we can we get more of our conversation into that mainstream literature and start and really start to open those floodgates. Because again, I believe there's a real opportunity. And I believe that a lot of academics are really open to what we're doing, you know, collectively. 
you know, you mentioned those three things that they asked you to do in your interview. And I think if, if I were to look back now, I, this is what I know about Andy Parker. Here are the three things that I know he's done in academia. It would be those three things. I mean, you, you absolutely nailed it uh, in terms of completing those three things. And it's been really inspirational for us to see the work that you guys have done. And I think for so many people uh, to be able to follow along with um, in the footsteps that you guys have have, have trodden you and Nick and the work that you've done. And it's fun for us, I think too, to be able to, to consider um, the growth in, in this, in this area. And that's part of what we're doing here at Sport Faith Life is trying to, to find, yeah, where there's gaps in the literature, but also I'd say geographic gaps and where we're not connecting with maybe more mainstream cultures. And that can be within academia or outside of it. There are certainly scholars all across disciplinary lines that are interested in uh, connecting either their faith or the study of the Christian faith uh, to what they're doing in scholarly fields. And so it's really exciting for us to be able to see some of the growth uh, that that's uh, the seeds of which have come from the work that you and Nick have done. Yeah. And I, th- I think, you know, you, you guys know this and I've said it publicly. Um, Nick Watson has been a huge part of that. I could not have done any of that on my own. Um, Nick, Nick is a, significant contributor to this whole area and continues to be his his input has been profound as far as i can see and in many ways i have simply been on nick's coattails i've simply been facilitating for him and making you know what my passion was to make sure that he he was in the right place at the right time to say and write the right things um and although nick's now stepped out of academia at the moment i'm absolutely convinced that that his journey is not over in in that respect so you know, I would really want to to emphasise his his role in all of that. Um, not and again with the Congress, um, et cetera, et cetera, and the development. He is a key visionary um, part of this story, and um, really a, for me a, a real centerpiece in in that respect. Uh, and we would echo that. We um, have spent a good amount of time with Nick, and and I've been fortunate to be Nick's friend for a while now. And, and in my time that I lived in England, uh, Nick was right there alongside me, and we got a chance to get to know each other, to uh, comp- compete on the golf course, uh, and his heart um, is clear, right? And so uh, the movement really was launched uh, from a really good place, and it's in really good hands as we think about the future of the Congress, uh, Sport Faith Life, and everything else that we're trying to pull together. Uh, so that gives us a good transition to start thinking about what's next. Just the original inaugural Global Congress was really, uh, I think Nick uh, dreamed it up in the middle of the night, and where it's come is just amazing. Um, so the first Congress in 2016, the second one in 2019, and uh, Really, you're going to have play a central role in Congress three. Are you ready to tell us uh, kind of where that next location will be? Yeah, I'm ready to tell you. I'm not ready to organize it. Um, that, <laughs> Too bad that, you get that as well. <laughs> so the third global congress uh, in 2022 will be at Ridley Hall in Cambridge. Um, and again, the story I've just told you about my involvement with Ridley, the way that has evolved over the last probably 18, 24 months is just incredible. And the way that Ridley have been so open-handed and open-hearted about embracing sport and, and embracing uh, the 2022 Congress. So just it's just amazing, isn't it, when you're in that space where God puts the right people around you. Um, and it, it, it becomes relatively easy. It's not going to be relatively easy to get it 
organized and all the rest of it. But what I mean is, you know, when when God decides that this is how it's going to be, he just puts the right people in the right place. And um, I think, you know, sometimes, sometimes, uh, and you guys have asked me this question, sometimes people say to me, Andy, you know, what, what do you do? Since you've come out of university, Gloucestershire, what, what do you do? And I, I usually say the same thing, and that is I just join the dots. I just join the dots for people. That I believe that is what God's called me to do in the next 10 years, really just to connect the right people in the right way to make to make kingdom things happen. And that's really all I'm interested in. So, so I've heard so many people talk about what that, what that life is like when you're living on the edge with God and not really know, not really knowing what's going to happen next. Um, and I've always listened to those people when they've said it and thought that must be great, you know, and, um, and it is great, but it's, it's also a little bit hairy. And um, so that, but that's the sort of season I find myself in now. And the, and the Congress, having the Congress at Ridley is, it probably gives me that feeling. I'm, I'm really excited about it and there's a bit of trepidation around it and I want to get it right for people. I want it to be a great experience um, both in terms of visiting the UK, um, you know, COVID pending, but also just making sure that 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 event is is what it's supposed to be, where we come together and we have some really good solid discussion and debate around what we really love and passionate about. Well, Ridley Hall, which is uh, in Cambridge and an entity of University of Cambridge, is such a great location, really. Uh, if we think about, um, you know, combining someone's personal interest of traveling maybe a little bit along with uh, professional interests in the sport faith conversations that we've had at the past couple of congresses and we'll continue to have here just seems like an ideal situation, especially knowing the interest that, um, that the Church of England has had in, in promoting sport and Christianity work and modules there at the seminary that you're uh, working on. And so it seems like an ideal situation where, you know, we're, we're moving to a new location, a location that will be a bit more accessible for certain folks um, that's the nature of being sort of an international movement here that we're trying to find spots that will be appealing to people that will be accessible to people. And it seems like, uh, Ridley hall is, is, um, is a wonderful opportunity. And it's a great place for people to visit, obviously, um, you know, 50 minutes from London on the train and relatively easy to access, but Cambridge as a city is, um, just amazing you know the history uh, and it's all on it's all on the doorstep of the college within what 10 minutes walking distance you are steeped in the the history of the cambridge university colleges i when i go there i go we teach residentially i go there six times a year and i just go really and i look around and wonder how on earth i got there you know in that sense it's just fantastic to be i I just like going to have a look around and being around the people and, and the colleges so yeah it's just a great opportunity well, I've been to uh, Cambridge one time, and it was the dead of winter, and it was so cold that the, uh, the the river was frozen over. Yet they still cracked the ice so people could punt down the river, and um, even in that cold temperature, what a fascinating place to see! Uh, and so we're really excited and really grateful that Ridley is seeing this as part of their mission. Uh, and we're really grateful for you uh, picking up this uh, this mantle because uh, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to try to pull this all together. And we're just uh, thankful that you've stepped in and, and uh, will be leading and guiding the next Congress. Sport Faith Life 
as an organization, we'll continue to remain connected to the Congress, and you'll be able to find information about the Congress uh, on the Sport Faith Life website and updates as we move closer and closer to this date. It will come faster than you think. So mark your calendars. We don't have a specific date yet at this point. Uh, it will be announced soon. Uh, so as soon as we have that in place, that will be available in a number of locations. And we'll continue to communicate with all of you as we uh, pull this Congress together. Andy, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks for uh, telling us your story, telling us a little bit more about yourself and your work. And we're just so excited to continue working with you in the future. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Sport Faith Life podcast. Find previous episodes at sportfaithlife.com and on Apple Podcasts. We're releasing each episode with a blog post authored by our guests, so you can find the blog for this podcast and other posts at the same website, sportfaithlife.com.